You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Eric. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for making the time. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show, available via both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Eric Elterman. Alterman, sorry. Uh... Well known, apparently not so well known that I know how to pronounce your last name, but well known <laughs> journalist and scholar, columnist for the nation, author of a number of books, including the best selling What Liberal Media question mark. Uh and you've written another book that we're gonna talk about today, just out, called Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse, Lest You Think that uh he's not we, we will establish that he is by the end of this am i am i right eric or i mean that's you will the, I, that's I am the neutral. easy part okay so and we should say you know that um you're actually by training an historian you got a phd uh in history at stanford although ironically your actual academic title in the city university uh of new york system is City University of New York Distinguished Professor of English at Brooklyn College. Is that because you're such a great writer that, that you're in English? That would be a nice explanation. No, the reason is, is because I was originally hired as a professor of journalism. Oh. And the journalism program was contained in the English department. And then for academic reasons, I split up and I got to choose and I chose English. Because I, I enjoy teaching English and I didn't enjoy teaching journalism. Okay. Do you teach actual, like, English literature? Or do yeah, you yeah, yeah. Wow. I do. Yeah. I teach this semester, I'm going to teach contemporary American writing. I often teach uh, films and literature together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach a lot of um, Jewish history and culture. Mm-hmm. They're good to me. They let me teach mostly what I want, so that's what I want to teach. It's the kind of job you want. Yeah. So, um, let's talk about your book. Now... There's a lot of history in this book, which is why I mentioned your credentials. Um, in fact, more than half of the book is about uh, presidents o- other than Trump and their lying. Yeah. And it turns three quarters, out, I think. Three quarters. Yeah, about three quarters of the book. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil the plot, but it turns out that a lot of presidents have lied. Almost all. Not all, but almost all. Yeah. Almost all. Yeah. Uh, uh, often the lying is done through the administration, strictly speaking. Some presidents... Uh, Try to minimize the number of lies they personally tell. I'm not prissy about calling a deliberate official deception a lie if it's told on behalf of the president. If the president doesn't even say anything but allows it to go ahead. I don't care about the president's state of mind. I don't care that he's such a narcissist he doesn't even know he's lying. I don't care if he thinks God told him. I think if it's the president's responsibility to know that something is true, and he deliberately participates in the misleading of the country, then it's a lie. Okay, so, but you've used, okay, you use the word deliberate twice there, or some form thereof. Now, the first time I thought you were saying it doesn't matter whether it's deliberate, but the second time I thought you were saying there well, is... we're del- always getting these excuses by journalists. I mean, newspapers in particular are incredibly reluctant to say the president lied. And when you say... But obviously what he said is not true. Then they say, well, you have to know a person's intent in order to call them a liar. But I, but I say if the president, if it's the president's responsibility to know 
And what he says is not true. I don't care okay. what his intent was. So that's your definition of law. The effect is the same. And I should admit that I am old school in, on this issue of what, how newspapers at least, um, should handle false statements by politicians. I am old school. Uh, and, and that is one of the reasons I give is that strictly speaking, a lie, uh, generally, if you look it up in the dictionary, it, it, it entails some kind of, uh, intent to deceive and strictly speaking we we seldom know for sure what's going on in somebody's head but but that's not the only reason i guess i'm old school and and um it also has to do well i i don't want to get off in on, on my own hobby horse but i but i will say that that you at, at the end of the book you address this issue and you would like newspapers to say they're lying and it it seems to be kind of not enough for you when they say something like Trump falsely claims, because, you know, that itself is an innovation, right? I mean, 10, 20 years ago, they almost never said that kind of thing. They would establish obliquely in the piece that they weren't telling the truth. You know, they might cite the fact that yeah. contradicts them, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't even be as judgmental to say Trump falsely claims. But for you, that even that is inadequate, right? Well, Bob, um, if I, I'm sorry to have to disagree with you so early in our conversation. I was hoping you would. Okay. I'm fine with Trump falsely claims. Okay. We don't, we rarely get that. We get one of two things. And, and again, even this is an improvement. What we usually get is Trump said X for which there's no evidence when we know there's contrary evidence, mm -hmm. but they don't say that. And the second thing we get, which is supposed to be the big innovation, are fact-checking columns. So that on page one, they say, they quote Trump saying this X, Y, Z, and in the tweet, it just says, here's what Trump said. And in the headline, it's what Trump said. And then you open the book, open the newspaper or the magazine or whatever it is or the website. You click down and they go, by the way, here's all the things he said that aren't true. And to me, that's useless, not useless, but it's not nearly enough. The, the falsehood, whatever you want to call it, I don't care really if you call it a lie or not. The falsehood has to be pointed out at the same time that the statement is quoted. Otherwise, the, uh, the person gets away with it. So that's, that's my big complaint. So even though the Washington Post has now counted 20,000 false claims, as they call them, by the president, they still go ahead and print those false claims as if they're true when they're reporting on them. The mm -hmm. New York Times does the same thing, and so do most of the publications I see. So the president gets away with, I'd say, 85 to 90 percent of his lies, even though everybody knows you know, he's a big liar because he's made 20,000 false claims as we speak with more to come. Yeah, there are people who keep track of these. Yeah. And one thing I'm sure you would say that distinguishes him from other presidential liars is just how damn prolific he is. I mean, of course, he has he, in a certain sense, he has more utterances than most presidents. If you count his tweets, if you count each tweet as an utterance, that's hardly has, the problem. Okay, that's, you don't that's think that's the, the only. Problem, you don't think that's the full extent of the no. uh, the full I explanation. Do think, however, though, that it's a terrible problem the way the media report on his tweets by just saying Trump tweeted this without pointing out that it's repeatedly been false. I mean, 
The, the reporter I admire the most in this respect is Daniel Dale, who was picked up from the Toronto Star mm-hmm. uh, from, by CNN. And he keeps track and he says, Trump said this for the 300th time, knowing that it's false. I mean, having been, having been determined it's false. We don't know if Trump knows that it's false, but if he doesn't know it's false, it means Trump is insane. So that's your choice because it's been pointed out so frequently. And, uh, and, and, but at the same time, CNN will, will tweet itself. It will write headlines. It will report it on, on the air and on CNN.com that Trump said this on the very same day that Daniel Dale has pointed out that he's lied about this now 300 times. So there's a disconnect here. There are a lot of reasons for it. I think it's one reason I wrote the book is because the, the question of why it, it happens and what it means is so complicated. It, it takes a book. Yeah. So what are some other things that disjoint so so quantitatively there's a, a distinction between Trump and your average presidential liar. I think I think we'd all agree he just says more things that are not true than I, I assume any other president in history. It's not even close. It's yeah. not even, he tells more he literally has told more lies in fifteen minutes than Barack Obama told in eight years. Literally, that's not an exaggeration. Um, okay, well, that's impressive in a certain way. So what about the qualitative dimension? I mean, is there something different in the nature of his lies, or at least in the nature of a lot of them, when you compare him to past presidents? I think there's two major differences, although I'm glad you asked me this, because I, I have to think about this and be able to answer that question clearly. One difference is that um, he doesn't care that you know that he's lying. So other presidents, when they lied, they were trying to convince you that what they were saying is true. And Trump is not even doing that. He's just trying to, he's just trying to win the minute, you know, not even the 10 minutes. He's trying to win the minute. I mean, I first noticed this when, um, during the debates with Hillary Clinton, where, uh, one of the questioners said to him, you've said that uh, global warming is just a conspiracy by the Chinese to destroy American manufacturing. And he said, I never said that. I never said that. I never said that. Well, he's on record hundreds of times having said that. And, but he didn't care. Like the next, you know, anyone could point it out. It's, it's easily available, but being a liar, you know, it comes from how he was raised and being in real estate, New York real estate and so forth. There's no, there's no, sh- literally no shame in being a liar. Whereas other presidents were not comfortable being thought of as lying. None of them before Trump ever were. And the second big difference is that I think this is true of every president that I that I have studied, and I, I have read at least one biography of every single one. Um, and again, most lied, but they lied in pursuit of a particular goal. They had a policy that and you and basically you understood what the policy was and you could approve of it or disapprove of it. Whereas you might not like the means by which it was pursued. But Trump, so Lyndon Johnson told a lot of lies about Vietnam, you know, because he really had concerns about his policy there. Nixon too. Uh, and Nixon is probably the biggest liar before Trump. But Trump doesn't lie for any particular reason. He just lies. He, 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 Trump had a meeting with Pierre Trudeau. Uh, and then he came out of the meeting and he said, yeah, I lied to him. Like, what was the point of lying if you're going to come out and say, yeah, I just lied to him? 
uh, in a press conference. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll go to, uh, he'll go to one of those, uh, European summits and he'll come to the microphone and he'll lie about what was just agreed upon when they're all standing there. And they're all going to say, no, we didn't agree to that in the next five minutes. So he hasn't accomplished mm-hmm. anything. He just lies again because like, you know, it used to be like, it used to be a big scandal. People were concerned that our politics were based on the week or on the day. Trump is only interested in the minute, you know, and, and the consequences of this are that you, I mean, it's interesting. He's kind of a genius. The consequences of lying all the time are that you can't believe anything. But Hannah Arendt made this point, um, in the origins of totalitarianism. And if people can't believe anything, then, then you can get away with it because nothing anybody says is true and, and everything is as true as the next thing. So you can, you can assert all these things and, and get away with them because there's no value to truth. Yeah. He's also a genius just at what you alluded to, holding attention. He's really good at that. It doesn't, that doesn't always involve lying. Sometimes it involves just saying something outrageous that, that, that isn't falsifiable or, or, or even well, he, untrue, but, but he he's amazing that at that. He did that recently because I'm not exactly sure when people are seeing this. Yeah, it'll, when he it'll said, be a, maybe we should cancel remember, the election. Yeah, they'll remember this. The, we're recording this on the day when he tweeted, should we maybe cancel <laughs> or postpone, I guess he said. I don't know what he, words he used, but yeah, and there was the predictable uproar and it's, you know, you, you, you questioned how often the lies are instrumental, but, but some people have pointed out that this came 15 minutes after the reporting of some really bad economic news. And well, that's his genius. It also, it also overshadowed John Lewis's, um, funeral service where Barack Obama gave his very first rather pointed attack hmm. on Trump in public. Yeah, he's definitely got, and I don't even know that he knows what he's doing. I think this, this is actually what I think genius is. I think genius is very different from intelligence. I think it's innate and, and instinctual. And he's got an instinctual genius to control media attention. And, and it's pathetic. It's so obvious. It's, you know, we have a little dog here who, who runs after a tennis ball and he's a, and Trump, you know, the media behaves just like this little dog. Um, I, I, yeah, and people in general, uh, I mean, I, well, non-media people on social media as well. I mean, he's, he's just very, he's very impressive in, in, in that sense. Um, now on the, on the issue of him not caring that you know it's not true, don't, don't you think that sometimes, um, he doesn't care that you know, you, you know, elite liberal Eric Alterman, but, there are like low information voters who aren't going to bother to follow it up and are in his base. And he's hoping that they'll uh, believe it. Right. Two things. One is I know I'm an elite liberal, quote unquote. I just like to say I went to nothing but public school. I teach in a public school. <laughs> My daughter went to nothing but public schools, including college. I take the subway when there's not a coronavirus. So, yeah, hey, I'm an elite Eric- liberal, but. If you, want to get com- if you want to get competitive, my grandfather was a sharecropper, okay? Oh, really? But okay. that's well, actually my, true. My, my grandfather was a, was a uh, kosher chicken farmer. Oh, that's nothing. I mean, look, when Clarence right. Thomas was, was being nominated for the Supreme Court, uh, everybody was like, his grandfather was a sharecropper. That's a, apparently like a huge deal. Do I get to be on the Supreme Court? Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I, you I digress. Di- I digress. What was the elite, other thing? Elite, I, oh, oh, yeah. elite, elite, elite. 
you actually comply with the technical definition of elite. As you know, as a good yes, social know, know. scientist, you are technically an elite. You're the For kind. the record, however. And, and I mean, <laughs> and, no, I'm going to answer your question. Yeah. I just wanted to get that out. Yeah. I've yeah. never been able to make that point in public. Um, you know, Trump is, again, this is part of his genius. One of the, one of the most ridiculous lies he told was at the very beginning when he made Sean Spicer go out there and tell everybody that, uh, that the crowd had been the biggest crowd ever. And anyone could see that it wasn't true. Um, and Sean Spicer had to humiliate himself. And then, uh, and that's when, um, Kellyanne went on, uh, NBC and said alternative facts. But Trump never let it go. He, he actually had the park service change the records, like change the photographs. Like he, he, he kept demanding that Spicer come up with numbers that somehow made it true. And the reason he does this is because it, 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 it you can't believe what you see and hear. It works on, on everyone. And, and the media, because they won't say the president lied. I mean, occasionally they do. I've seen it maybe twice in the newspapers of the New York Times, once in the Washington Post, uh, during the period I was writing a book, which ended in January. Um, then, uh, he wins because everything becomes a matter of he said, she said. And, and this is what, because the media remain committed to the um, ideology of objectivity, they have a lot of trouble taking a side. I wrote my very first book almost 30 years ago, uh, Sound and Fury, about the history of the punditocracy. Mm-hmm. Which was your term? Was that your term, punditocracy? Yes, thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. It's in the OED. Is it? Really? Yep. yep. When I die, that's what it's going to live on. Fun to talk to see in the OED. Um, I tried to get in with dialogue, but that didn't catch on. We're, we're having a dialogue right now, but apparently you and I are the only two people who know that. I'm enjoying the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, that's my contribution. Anyway, uh, in that, I had a little footnote in that book where I quoted, uh, George Bush, who was, uh, the president, George H.W. Bush, saying something about why the district shouldn't be a state. I don't remember exactly what it was. Although, interestingly, Barack Obama mentioned that today. I think it's good cause for Democrats, D.C. statehood. And then Jesse Jackson replied, that's terrible, and here's why. That was the framing of the story in the Washington Post. And they were both lying. But that didn't matter. Objectivity just says, quote one side, you have to quote the other side, with no bias at all in favor of truth. And Trump exploits that like we've never seen. Now, one of the themes of the book is that the Republican Party has been doing this for a long time. I mean, politicians always did it to some degree. But the Republican Party uh, took began taking leave of reality successfully, first under Ronald Reagan, uh, and then Newt Gingrich um, jacked it up quite a bit. And it was successful for these reasons. Um, and, and Trump just took it into the stratosphere so that when you watch those debates from 2015, 2016, nothing they say is true. Nothing. And the reports the next day are all, Oh, this person really connected with the audience. They did great. And they were, it was all about lies. They were connected on the basis of lies, but that was considered irrelevant. So there are a lot of problems that go into this, but 
again, that's why I wrote a book because, you know, mm. truth, truth should matter whether you like it or not. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, of course, the other side has their own story about the arms race over the last uh, 30 years of kind of hardball politics with seemingly growing disregard for the truth. But I, I, as somebody who, like you, is left of center, it seems to me that more of it has come to the right as well. That I don't think you need to be left of center to say that. I mean, there's I have so many quotes in that book from Republicans who say, I used to be a Republican, but I just yeah. can't stand this anymore. Yeah. And well, it's, Ging- gradual. it's gradual. Gingrich certainly seems to have been a pioneer. Yeah. Um, I will well, Reagan say. too. Reagan is gets credit for not being a liar because he was considered nuts. But I'm tired of that explanation. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get into Reagan. Let, let's get into the history now because, um, and, and where I would like to start actually is with the, uh, FDR and then Truman, uh, section because for one thing, that covers the beginning of a cold war. And we now may, may be headed into a new Cold War with China. And so I, I think it's interesting in that context. I mean, we should say, in general, one one moral of the story of your book is um, when we intervene militarily, when we, uh, you know, conquer territory, when we occupy uh, territory as we as we did a territory that was previously Native American and so on. Lies usually get told. There usually is deception. It, it's just a, a, uh, a very common source of not a very common reason to not tell the truth, apparently, right? Well, I have, I have two theses about this, one of which actually surprised me and one didn't. But uh, for the first two centuries or century and a half of American history, most of the lies were told for one of two reasons. Well, there are lies told by politicians because politicians lie for their own to win elections and so forth. But most of the lies were told for one of two reasons. One was because of the country's commitment to white supremacy. That's the one that I just hadn't thought about. And the other one was a commitment to expansion and empire. And both of these two things are contradictory to the notion we like to carry around of ourselves in our head. We are, you know, we are supposed to be a nation where all men are created equal. And we are supposed to be a nation that, uh, is, uh, does not, uh, have an empire, does not, um, force people to do anything they don't want to. We're the champions of democracy, et cetera. But those two things are false. And so presidents, in order to, um, appeal to the idea of the country that people had in their head on both of these counts had to lie over and over and over and over. Because we were enormously expansions, and contained within that expansion was always the insistence on white supremacy. So that's that's I can I can tie almost all the important lies told um, through uh, up to I'd say Woodrow Wilson at least. So, for uh, example, uh, Andrew Jackson. I mean, an example of what might fall. In, maybe into both categories, but both Andrew categories. Jackson saying, claiming that the agreements with the, that the Indians were voluntarily, uh, ceding the territory and so on. That's an, that's an example. Well, there are two problems with Andrew Jackson and their relationships. One is that Indians were considered savages and killing them had no, you weren't killing, you know, a human being. So the, the lie was that 
the, you, you conquered these territories without any cost. And, you know, there was no, there was no humanitarian cost. Um, but secondly, uh, Jackson signed all these treaties with the Indians that he had no intention of, of, um, adhering to. So as soon as the treaties became inconvenient, they were immediately ignored and, and therefore lied about. So you had a combination of, and, and in fact, there were, um, I quote somebody, a, a Republican senator at the time, and said, well, we don't really have to adhere to these treaties because they're not Christians, and non-Christians can't swear to anything. So we're not really lying. We're not really doing anything wrong. So when you combine this insistence, I mean, that's in the days of manifest destiny. But when you combine the idea that America, that we white, this white Christian nation is touched by God to go out there and improve everybody's life by either killing them or converting them. Uh, well, that's a lie, but it's, it's a lie that is a necessary lie if you want to be a successful politician at that time and place. Okay. So, um, let's, uh, let's talk about the deception involving war that you seem to most approve of. Which is FDR's. As a rule, as a rule, you disapprove of the deceptions you chronicle, but for FDR, you make an exception, right? I make really two big exceptions. One is FDR and one is Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although, Mm -hmm. um, these are the lot, these are two of the lies I know the most about because they were subjects of my doctoral dissertation 30 years ago or something. Um, and interestingly, there were enormous costs to these lies told afterward. That, that, and both both presidents died uh, early in their terms, Roosevelt in his fourth term, and they weren't there to see the cost paid. But yeah, look, Roosevelt, um, I got to say, I, my first book online called When Presidents Lie, which was based on my dissertation, came out in 2004. I made the argument that presidents should never lie. And I can't make that argument today, in, in large measure because of Roosevelt. Because Roosevelt was leading an isolationist nation, a nation that could not be talked into how dangerous Nazi Germany was. And so he sneakily created all these situations that got us deeper and deeper into a war with uh, Germany and Japan uh, in order to save civilization. So when I weigh saving civilization versus the president lying, I got to go with saving civilization. I got to say, what a far-sighted leader we had at that time when the country was embroiled in all this foolish isolationism with regard to this threat that Hitler posed. Um, and that, that, that one example is enough to disprove the rule for me. So, uh, and the lies included, uh, uh, or the deceptions at least. Well, no, I guess you would call these lies. In, in your view, um, he, his reassurances uh, that we wouldn't go to war at, at, at points where you're pretty sure he knew he was planning to get us into war. And then the specific, uh, some of the pretext for war, like I gather, uh, we kind of, um, you could say arranged for an American ship to be attacked by a German submarine. Was that it? But right, by it's, arranged, it's, it's, I mean. Right, the Greer. Yeah. It's remarkably similar and spookily so to the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Uh huh. Where, where, uh, and, and, um, which, Senator which Fulbright made Vietnam. this, yeah. right? Senator Fulbright made this exact point. I think it's Fulbright, maybe not, but I think so. 
where the the lies, the noble lies that Roosevelt told to save the world were uh, quite similar to the lies that Lyndon Johnson told to get us to Vietnam with tragic consequences. Right. But yes, he, he did lie about specific incidents that were designed to to increase tension, and there were some battles that took place that he lied about that happened, and, as and well that, as lying about the fact that he wanted to bring us to war. And in that and case, when I say arranged to have it, I mean, he kind of harassed the, the submarine in a way that made it likely that the ship would get attacked. Now, now Johnson, on the other hand, at the at his initial, when he initially announced that an American ship had been attacked, he actually thought it was true at that point, right? It's just that the administration never really backed off from the lie once it was clear that it wasn't true. In a very narrow sense, because he so wanted to go on the air mm-hmm. and announce that we were retaliating on that night and, in fact, got the plane shot down because he told the North Koreans as well. I mean, the North Vietnamese as well. He was not lying. He had so pressured the system to give him the information he wanted and without a check that he didn't find out that it wasn't true for a couple of days. But there were so many lies built into that. Um, in terms of U.S. policy with regard to Vietnam and what our ships were doing and our, the policy that caused it, that mm-hmm. that particular lie is, is not even that important. Now, um, then after World War II, there's another kind of deception that Roosevelt participates in, which I, I, I had never realized before kind of helped start the Cold War. And that was the Yalta agreements uh, between Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, I guess, uh, part of which were secret. Now, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson and his 14 points, I think one of those had been no secret agreements among nations. Right. But um, but that, of course, was just his, his little list. It wasn't legally binding or anything. And there was a, a secret part of Yalta that even Truman didn't know about, right? And right. T- talk about how that, led, how that led to trouble. Well, there were two big categories of lies about Yalta. One was what Roosevelt came back and told Congress he had achieved in terms of freedom for Eastern Europe, and he hadn't achieved any of that. Um, but you could look at the agreements yourself and make that conclusion if you wanted to, you know, if you were a real expert. You mean um, you could conclude that the, 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 there was no such guarantee, or you... Yes, you could, you could say he says that this means that the Soviets are going to allow Poland to be but free, but if you read it carefully, it's not it doesn't really do that. Yeah. And, and you, and if you were really smart and skeptical, you could have come to that conclusion and just said he's vastly exaggerating the degree to which he got the Soviets to agree to, um, a peaceful future. But his successor apparently didn't read it that way, Truman. Uh, no, almost nobody did. But, yeah. but the law, the specific lie, had to do, see, this is very complicated. If you make a secret agreement during wartime that is, that you need to keep secret because it's a war, then you need to keep it secret. I'm cool with that. You know, if you, if the, we didn't know that an atomic bomb would work and we didn't want to invade Japan because the, the, um, the casualty, expected casualty rate would have been enormous, like a million men they predicted. So Truman made a deal with the Soviets to give them, give away territory uh, that belonged to uh, Japan and China. I think it's China, South Sakhalin. See, um, in exchange for the Soviets agreeing to declare war on Japan so that we wouldn't 
we would have a partner and fewer Americans would die. Mm -hmm. And if you had revealed that, then it would destroy part of the value of having the agreement. So you can't reveal it. But um, the the problem here uh, is that Truman didn't never learned about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he he insisted that it had never happened, and Roosevelt didn't tell him and hardly told anyone. One of the only people who knew was the translator Avril Harriman, and he lied about it because he was very very anti-Soviet. He would be the ambassador to the Soviet Union. He had lived there and had been miserable. Um, so by the time Truman finally found out and and believe it or not after roosevelt died the state department said they couldn't find a copy of the agreement anymore so they didn't know what it was in it and 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 roosevelt he treated truman quite contemptuously he'd only spoke to him twice as vice president and never about anything important so so by the time truman finally found out that uh that the soviets were telling the truth and the united states was lying he couldn't say, oh, sorry, oops, they're right and I'm wrong. He had to stick to the lie. And that, to me, was a very significant cause of the Cold War. Now, that's because by then he had already expressed great moral outrage at things the Soviets did, like impose harshly authoritarian rule on Poland, that he thought that Truman thought were violations of the Yalta Agreement or inconsistent with it, but in fact were fully consistent with it, right? I mean, so, I mean, one thing that happened yes. is he got super well morally outraged by the Soviet Union, uh, on grounds that turned out not to be, I mean, I mean, the, you know, you can make whatever moral judgment you want about authoritarianism, but he thought it was a, a violation of a contract of sorts and that fed his outrage. Yes, exactly. Very well said. It's tricky. Stalin was one of the three great mass murderers of all time, I would say. And yet he really stuck to his agreements in a way that the United States did not. There's no question that the United States violated the Yalta Agreement before the Soviet Union did. In what way? By, by voting to allow Argentina oh, into right. the UN. Okay. And Argentina had not fulfilled the rules that the United States and Soviet Union and Britain agreed needed to be fulfilled before you could be allowed into the UN. So that's, there's no, there can be no argument about that. But then the question of what the Soviet agreed to, well, they agreed to, like, freedom and democracy, but they have their own definitions of freedom and democracy. And Roosevelt knew full well that he hadn't gotten it, what he wanted. And and his advisors knew. And then when Truman became president, not only did he not know, he didn't even know Roosevelt was at Yalta, but not only did he not know anything about foreign affairs, uh, he, 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 he didn't, he couldn't read the agreement and make any sense of it. He said that. So what happened was you had one group of advisors, mostly the military guys, who said, look, the Soviets are adhering to this deal. It was the best deal we could get. The Red Army did, after all, conquer Europe, you know, win the war. And we got to stick by it because otherwise we're going to be in a terrible situation. And then there were a bunch of proto-Cold Warriors who said, no, we need to have a showdown with the Soviet Union now because we're fighting for the control of the world and we need to, and the only thing they understand is force and we got to and we got to make our showdown now or, or we'll forever be lost and those guys won Truman's heart and eventually i mean it was it wasn't clear for a while he didn't really come in with any preconceptions i would say but eventually he sided with those guys and that's how the cold war began now most soviets would say and a lot of historians would say and i personally believe that roosevelt probably could have worked things out the Soviets liked Roosevelt. They trusted him. He, he was very sneaky and, 
he he didn't really care about you know they could have killed as many people as they wanted to as long as they stayed within their zones. Mm-hmm. Um, but Truman had none of this had didn't have this kind of sophistication or realpolitik, and he couldn't handle it. And then, as the 1948 election approached, having a brewing Cold War became kind of a campaign asset for him. Is that right? There's a famous memo written by uh, Clark Clifford and uh, George Elsie, advisors to Truman, uh, that said that the way to win this election is to gin up the Cold War and um, increase uh, liberalism at home, mm-hmm. and that became the formula. So uh, they created a phony war scare, and they they made the Cold War much worse than it needed to be. I mean, this is a kind of uh, existential question. Did there need to be a Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union? Probably. Did we need to have the Cold War that we had, where millions of people were killed, and we had incredibly dangerous nuclear arms race? I would say no, we did not. Mm-hmm. I guess this is this gets at the kind of analogy I was seeing. And, but- and, it, and it goes to the lies. The lies are a big reason. That's why I'm talking this way. You mean without the lies, there would have, there would not have been a, a, a cold the war. The kind of, the kind of cold war we had. Yeah. A lot of people would still be alive without those lies. So the parallel I saw between this and the kind of brewing cold war with China is that Trump, you know, like Truman, he didn't have, he was kind of in play. His administration was divided between China hawks and, and, and more dovish people like Manukin is more dovish. Peter Navarro's a hawk. And they had been struggling for his soul to some extent. And he, you know, he could go either way. Now, he was an economic nationalist, and that led to some trade conflict that created some tension. But what really seems to have been decisive is that the pandemic hits with an election approaching, and he's got to blame China. And that that seems to have... uh you know, gone a long way to get us where we are, it seems to me. And now with the election approaching, there's, you know, uh, the, the, you know, uh, blame China, you know, it, it feeds into his story in various ways, but I think the election only intensifies his incentive to, um, to sustain tension with China. That's kind of what I meant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're, you're well beyond the scope of my book now. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, just being a pundit for a moment, what else has he got? You know, <laughs> it's the worst, the country's in the worst situation it's been in, in, in anyone who's alive's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he needs to blame someone. And, you know, he, for a while, he just blamed immigrants and people of color and Muslims. Um, but the problem is obviously that 150,000 people as we speak are dead and more are going to die. Um, between now and election time. And China's the obvious uh, culprit for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I don't think it'll work, but he's got nothing else. Okay, so let's let's just talk about a number of... Let's go through some of the uh, highlights in presidential lying. Um, let's touch on George Washington quickly. After all, he could not tell a lie, as we were uh told in school. He, he and also because one of his big deceptions involves slavery, which is very much in Washington slavery, of course, very much in the current conversation. But he uh this Pennsylvania some Pennsylvania law led him to intentionally Yeah, that's the only lie I found of Washington's. I actually really? Yeah. Incredibly 
embarrassing. I can't believe I'm telling you the story, but I went up to Ron Chernow at a party and I said, you know, Washington told the lie. He goes, yeah, I know. I go, you're right. That's where I read it. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, the thing about slavery is that slavery was based on a lie. So you had to lie if you had slaves or believe in slavery. And, and all of our founding fathers who had slaves end up uh, caught in this web. In the sense of what? In, the, in what sense did it entail a lie? That uh, black people are not human and do not deserve to be treated as humans and are happy not to be treated as humans. So that, you know, is it true that Thomas Jefferson had a romantic relationship with um, Sally Hemming. No, he he raped her because you can't have a romantic relationship with a slave, particularly a slave who's 27 or 30 years younger than you. I mean, that's a lie. It's, we know that to be a lie. Uh, but anyway, Washington had a, some favored slaves. He and his wife had some favored slaves. And Pennsylvania had a law that said if you took a slave through Pennsylvania um, for any period of time, they were free. And there was something having to do with him having to go from New York, which was the capital at the time, um, to through Pennsylvania to either to Virginia or Washington, uh, what became Washington, the new capital. And they were going to be in um, Pennsylvania for long enough so that they would become free. And so he cooked the books. He pretended to send them back when they didn't really send them back so they wouldn't have to live with the inconvenience of not having their favorite slaves with them. And he admitted this. There's a record of him uh, instructing people to keep it quiet. Yes, I know I'm not telling the truth because I don't want to have to deal with this law. So he knew he was lying. Okay. So... um. Let's see who else. Well, you know, Woodrow Wilson is so widely uh, disliked these days. We should say that uh, apparently you had trouble finding him himself telling lies, right? He tried to avoid lying himself. There was a huge deception surrounding his infirmity, as there yes. was with Roosevelt, as there was with John Kennedy. No, yeah, but but Wilson was, was a more serious case than any of More consequential. No, more serious. I mean, he was unconscious. Yeah. Kennedy had, you know, he had a lot of health problems. Right. Um, but Wilson was, Wilson's doctor and wife were running the country. Uh, so that was, so that was an enormous lie that the president, you know, he was signing legislation without being conscious. Um, that's one form of the lie. The lie that I'm, I mean, here you could, uh, one might argue that I'm stretching the meaning of lies, but, I think if you restrict information through censorship um, and create false impressions on purpose, that counts as a lie. Mm-hmm. So when you arrest all these people and call them a threat to the uh, country, when they're you know they're not a threat to the country, they're just at bake sales for for socialist publications or even Christian publications. Or you arrest a guy for making a movie in which the British are heroes. Um, that's, that, that is, that is a, that is perpetuating a falsehood and therefore your administration is responsible for a lie and the buck stops with the president. So again, you know, there's a discussion among Kennedy's aides where, um, Arthur Schlesinger says, 
to someone else. Let's get someone else to say this so the president can truthfully say that he didn't do it or didn't mm-hmm. know about it. And to me, that's a lie. I don't care if you've created the plausible deniability on the part of the president. If mm-hmm. your, his administration has deliberately created a purposeful deception. Mm-hmm. I think it's too cute and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if the country is being deceived. That's what's important. Yeah. And that's what there's a lot of in pre-Trump administrations are lies that clearly must have been like discussed and constructed. They're, they, they're put out by the administration. They're clearly instrumental. And of course that happens with Trump, but, but, uh, but with Trump, as you said, much more often, it's just, it just seems like he kind of feels like it. Well, with Trump, you know, the, the fish is rotting from the head down. So when, with Lyndon Johnson, a lot of the lies were told by Robert McNamara and McGeorge Bundy and William Bundy. Um, they testified under oath and lied to Congress and they lied to the press. And, uh, and I hold, you know, I say these are presidential lies, but and they were lying on behalf of Vietnam. You know, Johnson is actually considered by historians to be a pretty successful president now, which I, I find shocking, but it's certainly not because of Vietnam. It's because of his domestic program. So he did Vietnam and lied about Vietnam because he didn't think he could sustain support for his domestic problem unless he did. With Trump, everything is Vietnam. Everybody is lying about everything. Because there's no penalty to it. There's no shame in it. And, and I, and I, you know, I, I, I have these just little footnotes where I say the administration lied about in one sentence. I'll say this, 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 and this. And there'll be a little footnote where it'll be a secretary lying. And mm-hmm. there's no, there's no, there are no consequences to this. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by the fact that our, our, that's why I'm so upset with the way our media cover these things because they don't, they don't say the secretary said this and he lied and here's why. They say the secretary did this and maybe there's some counter evidence that it's not true, but here's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then they don't bother doing uh, the fact-checking of the secretary. That's, you know, no effort is put into that. So these lies become part of the ether. They become part of the air. and You can never catch up with them. So... um one whole category of uh, deception, I guess, is, um, uh, you know, inter- covert intervention, I guess. Um, and the Eisenhower administration has a certain amount of this uh, supporting coups in Iran, in Guatemala. Of course, earlier, Teddy Roosevelt had fomented uh, a revolution that led to the creation of Panama so that he could create the, the Panama yeah. Canal. All of this, these things always entail, entail deception, right? Right. Um, and then Eisenhower also was kind of caught lying about the U-2 thing when Russia turned out had downed a, a U-2 spy plane. Which right. Supposedly that was his wasn't biggest there. regret because he was caught. He right. was humiliated by having been caught. Much Listen, less consequential than some of the others, but he, he it was the one that bothered him just because people knew knew it right. was a deception. By the way, Eisenhower's chief of staff suborned perjury in that case. He told the uh he told someone else to lie to Congress, which is exactly what Clinton would have been impeached for if he had done it, but he didn't end up doing it. You know, there was that whole thing about, did he tell Monica Lewinsky to lie to the uh-huh. under oath? He didn't actually do it. Um, 
But Eisenhower did, or at least his chief of staff did. Sherman and, Adams, I guess. And every, must, yeah, and everybody and everybody loves him for it. Uh, look, uh, with regard to covert action, again, if you had killed Hitler covertly, I'm all for it and lied about it. Totally cool with that. The problem with lying about covert action is that uh, is that most of these lies, most of these covert actions, um, the president is saying we did this to protect the national security of the United States. Mm-hmm. We did this to protect our citizens, and that's where the lie is. Because don't you think they don't you think huge. they actually believe it often? No, no, you no. don't. You don't think Eisenhower bought? I mean, did, some presidents really bought into the Cold War thing, don't you think that that Really, Guatemala, you know, uh, I mean, what? Iran, did, Iran, you had to overthrow Iran. <laughs> that does seem far-fetched. But I'll tell you, I remember, you know, I'm a little older than you, and I remember, like, the idea being in the air that, like, the whole world is this chessboard, and every time we lose a piece, that's, like, seriously, I mean, the, the idea was very much out there. Now, it may have been that. Yes, no, that's the theory, and, and, in all, and most, most, uh, most administrations have operated under that theory. Um, I'm just reading a friend of mine's biography of Jimmy Carter that's forthcoming. And Zbigniew Brzezinski felt that way about everything. Everything had to be mm-hmm. taken care of because of the Soviet Union, including Iran. Um, but it's not true. If you look at the case of Chile, for instance, uh, with Nixon and Kissinger working very hard to overthrow the democratically elected government of Chile, they're being, it's being reported from inside Chile by Americans and by U.S. Intelligence agencies that there is no connection whatsoever to the Soviet Union. Ditto Iran. The Tudor party had no correction to the Soviet Union. They just don't like communists anywhere and they like helping out U.S. business. In Nixon's case, it was Coca-Cola and in, uh, Iran, it was, um, United Fruit. And that's who ran the policy. And, and so when they say this, the freedom of these people and the security of the United States is at risk, they're lying. They just have this idea that it's a chessboard and we are going to win and we don't care what the human cost is. Now, do you think not even John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's secretary of state, um, believed the, the gospel? Well, Dulles lied frequently. Well, yeah, but didn't he believe he was doing it in the service of a, of a fundamental, uh, fundamentally important and even existential kind of cause? Yes, I believe that. But I don't care. He doesn't get to decide that. (laughs) If he wants to make that case, he should make that case. I guess, I guess I'm just saying that, that to, if he wants to come out and say, look, we had to kill a lot of innocent people and to prevent other countries from behaving democratically. Because we're in a struggle with other somewhere, somebody else 6,000 miles away. And that's the way it is. And tough luck. Okay. We can argue about that. We can discuss that. But if he says, no, we're actually helping these people when we're not, we're killing them and destroying their democracy and in- instituting a government that will torture them for decades. Well, and I don't care. Well, right. But my point, thinks. my point is that. He thinks there's an analogy with the Hitler case. You said, well, if you're killing Hitler, then lie. He knows he's lying, but he's saying, "It's look, you can't sponsor a coup and tell the truth. You have to lie if you're going to be in the coup sponsoring business. And he believes that the threat of the Soviet Union is existential. It's a threat to civilization in somewhat the way uh, Nazi Germany was a threat. I, uh, you know, I, I'm just suggesting that maybe... 
So even though in the two cases, we're three cases we're discussing, Guatemala, Iran, and Chile, mm-hmm. we have established that they knew that there was no connection to the Soviet Union by the people that they were overthrowing. You're saying it's still okay to lie about that? Uh, well, you tell me, did, did Dulles not believe there was any connection? He was informed that there was no connection. He no, was he told didn't. there was no connection. Yeah, but, because people were trying to... By the people he sent there. The 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 ambassador to Chile, Edward Corey, who is a very cold warrior type mm-hmm. guy, he said, there's nothing here. And they didn't care. That's that's in Nixon's case. In in But I'm saying, uh, if you look at the book, there's evidence uh, from historians that I, I didn't... I mean... The evidence I discovered all has to do with the cases that I did my dissertation on. The other evidence uh, in the Eisenhower case comes from respected historians who demonstrate that there's no question. And and Eisenhower, he, you know, he, they, they saw this as a big contest. That they saw it as a public relations contest, and the details and the individuals didn't matter. So if you overthrew a Marxist government. In, 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 uh, Chile or a government in Guatemala that wanted to do land reform, you were winning. You were creating a perception of winning. And that's what they cared about. They didn't care at all about what the actual governments were doing. They were willing to lie about that in order to create the perception of winning. Now, would the American people have supported that? Uh, because they wanted to win too and they don't care about other people? Quite possibly they would have, but they never got the choice. But and I, so democracy is undermined as a result. Yeah, I, I would just think that when they're, when it's a socialist government, uh, they, they just imagine that ultimately it could, whether, however closely connected it is or isn't to the Soviet Union, it could wind up that way if they permit it to be a socialist. So we now, should overthrow the French government? No, I'm against all so, this, I'm against government? all this stuff, but, but, uh, but I, but, but it's a, it's a belief of mine that People are pretty good at convincing themselves either that they're not lying when they're not telling the truth or that it's a noble lie. Well, it's my job to tell you that they were lying and that, and right. that, and that their reasons are false. I mean, Henry Kissinger famously said about Cambodia, I don't see why, no, about Chile. Sorry. I don't see why we should allow a country to go Marxist due to the irresponsibility of its own people. Right. Okay. So that's the mindset. Meaning, that, meaning their electoral decision. Meaning they democratically choose a Marxist government right. and we say they have no right to do that. Now, if our politicians campaigned on that, I would say, and one, I would say this is a pretty nasty country. We should really allow people to be who they want, but at least it would be democratic choice, mm-hmm. but it's not a democratic choice because in Chile, there was no role for the Soviet Union at all. There was no relationship between Allende and the Soviet Union or, 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 you know, any, any other third party. And yet they lied and said there were. Mm-hmm. And the reason they did that was, you know, for, for the psychic high of it and for U.S. corporations. Now, um, Let's talk a little, well, actually, let's stay on Kissinger for one second, because one of the more amazing acts of cynicism, in my view, in history that you talk about in the book is, uh, Nixon and Kissinger kind of conspiring to derail the peace talks before Nixon was elected 
so that he could get elected. He was afraid that Lyndon Johnson, if he succeeded at the peace table with North Vietnam, might win, not, might beat him in the 1968 election, right? Right. It has some parallels with Trump and the Russians in that Nixon and Kissinger were willing to commit what uh, Lyndon Johnson thought was treason, just like um, Barack Obama was worried about what the Russians were doing and didn't say anything, and they got away with it. But yes, um, Kissinger was a member of the Paris peace talks under Lyndon Johnson. We were getting close to an agreement in, in, with South Vietnam and North Vietnam. And Hubert Humphrey was closing in on Nixon. He was about two points behind in the 1968 election. And, you know, the Democratic Party was terribly divided because most Democrats were against the war and Johnson and Humphrey was for the war. So if you could declare peace, it would unite the party and continue Humphrey's um, momentum and Nixon probably would have lost the election. So Nixon sent a message through a woman named Anna Chenault, a Republican socialite and fundraiser, to the South Vietnamese um, ambassador that they should refuse any deal that uh, was offered to them in Paris because Nixon would get a better deal for them after he became president. And they did that. So there was no deal signed, and the war continued for four more years. And um, and two things resulted. One is is that twenty seven thousand Americans died in that period. Who knows how many millions of uh, Southeast Asians died? And the deal was essentially the same deal that was offered in nineteen sixty nine. It was not improved at all. The second thing was was that the South Vietnamese had Nixon over a barrel. William Bundy writes about this in his book. Um, and so they could make all kinds of demands on Nixon lest they reveal what had happened. Oh, really? And so, yeah. And so this horrible Christmas bombing that was undertaken where more bombs were dropped on uh, North Vietnam than were dropped in all of World War II in order to allegedly bring them to the table was done in order to get South Vietnam to come to the table. That was their condition. We, you need to bomb the hell out of them again so mm-hmm. that we have a chance of surviving. So um, this was a disaster for the country. And it was, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson thought it was treasonous. And he met with congressional leaders and he said, you know, what should I do about it? And he was never asked why he did nothing. Um, the, the obvious explanations are two. One is that he would have had to reveal that he was illegally wiretapping Nixon. He didn't want to do that. And two, he, he, even though Nixon, this is, this is how screwed up American politics are. Even though Nixon was running as the peace candidate and Johnson was running as the candidate of Lyndon Johnson and continuing the war, he had more faith in Nixon continuing the war than he did in Humphrey continuing the war. Sorry, I meant Humphrey's crew. Um, because the Democratic Party was the anti-war people were so strong. And so and he wanted the war continued. So there's a lot of evidence that Johnson really wanted Nixon to win. And that's why he didn't do it. But also he would have had to admit that he was conducting illegal wiretaps in the United States, which he wasn't supposed to be doing. That's illegal. 
Ah, that because that's how he found out. So yeah. um, let's talk a little about Kennedy. You said he told one of the few lies you approve of. That's in the uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis when he doesn't disclose to the American people that actually to avert the threat of nuclear conflict, he made a, a, a secret concession to the Soviets. He took some missile, agreed to take some missiles out of Turkey that they found threatening. Right, but right. but aside from that, Greece. what's that? And possibly Greece, although we're not sure about that. And possibly Greece. Okay. Yeah. But aside from that, I mean, I was just struck uh, by, uh, in reading that section, like what a mass of reasons to deceive he constituted, right? I mean, between his health problems, his his reckless philandering, his mob connections, and his apparent actual use of the mob to pull it for political ends, uh, at least we can we can uh, certainly speculate. I think that was his dad more than him. Well, what about? Um, seems like there was one. What about? The there sh- was some involvement with the mob in trying to. Well, kill I mean, they, they may have come to his assistance. A in the West Virginia primary in 1960, and in some sense, right? And then B yeah. in Chicago in the general election. In Chicago, he didn't win by many votes, uh, and right. that was no, a very close election. Yeah, definitely, the mob had something to do with that. Did Kennedy know about that? I don't know. Or just certainly his father? His, certainly, his dad. Put it together. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem, uh, look, it's it's weird. This is why the this is why the book doesn't have like a single moral. Roosevelt and Kennedy were incredibly successful, smart presidents, and they were compulsive liars. Um, they were really smart liars. They lied in pursuit of goals that they then pursued, which is different than lying for no good reason and just being a liar. Um, but they lied, uh, in the case of Kennedy, he lied according to the rules of the time. President's health and president's sex lives, everyone sort of agreed it was okay to lie about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and Lyndon Johnson actually lied about having more sex outside of his marriage than <laughs> he really had because he was intimidated by Kennedy's reputation as a ladies man. And he even got his wife, Lyndon Johnson got his wife to say she was glad that he had lots of sex. Because he learned new things that she got to enjoy. That's how terrible things were in those days. Um, so, so Kennedy's, uh, I mean, it depends which lies we're talking about. Part of the problem with the mob stuff, uh, is that the main source is, uh, is, uh, is one of Kennedy's mistresses who told her story to Kitty Kelly. And there's no way to check a lot of it. It's, it's Judith, it's, Jude, Judith Exner. Judith Exner. Yeah. Um, it makes sense, and there's some evidence to back it up, and a lot of the denials did not – like there's there's phone records in the White House that back up some of the things she says. Um, so it's almost certain that he did have an affair with her, and he had it with Jackie in, in the White House at the time. I mean, he did amazing, shocking things from a moral standpoint. But did he use her as a courier and hand and leave – thousand dollar bills on the bed that she was then supposed to deliver to Sam Giancana. That seems a big leap, but it's not impossible. And mm-hmm. she says it. So, um, and then, you know, Giancana gets killed and Jimmy Roselli gets killed. Everybody who would have known about it, they all get killed. It's a, it's a conspiracy, um, not a dream. Um, and there's really no way to untangle it. But yeah, Kennedy, like Roosevelt, they're both really rich guys. They both felt like they always had everything under control, and they kind of did. Like, 
they both felt like whatever arose, they could handle it. And so they did whatever they wanted and got away with it. I mean, Roosevelt also was, even though he had polio, he, he was something of a philanderer. He's, he had this really strange relationship with his wife, who was probably conducting a lesbian love affair in the White House at the time. And, and it was all cool because, uh, because those kinds of lies were uh, not only accepted, but admired. Mm-hmm. So quickly, uh, Jimmy Carter, I still remember him saying at the very beginning of his presidency, maybe before he was sworn in, I don't know, but saying, I will never lie to you. He campaigned on that, yes. He campaigned. So, did he deliver? He did a pretty good job. Uh-huh. It's hard to find uh, Carter lying. Uh, he lied during the campaign. I don't know if you want to call it lies. He definitely, you know, he was a he was governor of Georgia, and if you want to be governor of Georgia in that time and place, and then run as the national Democratic nominee for president, your record is going to be a problem. So a lot of his records disappeared, and he explained that hmm. things he said in the past he didn't mean what they sound like he meant. Um, so you could call those lies. Stephen Brill wrote an article in Harper's called Jimmy Carter's Pathetic Lies. And most of the lies that he came up with were not really lies. Um, Carter, uh, I say in the, in the book, Carter was much more lied about than lied. No question. Um, the one thing that I, I think he did lie about had to do with helping the Soviets helping the Afghans mm. uh, fight the Soviets. Brzezinski got him involved in that. And, uh, you know, that's one of those cases where the empire forces, yeah. the empire made me do it. Um, but he was actually, he would have been a lot better off if he lied. I think, yeah. I think Washington society resented the fact that he wouldn't lie to them. They, they had gotten used to being lied to. There were certain lies they expected, particularly with regard to national security and the fact that he wouldn't tell them pissed them off. In the very beginning of his presidency, this is a story I spent a lot of time on. Um, it was discovered that uh, the CIA had been paying uh, for the uh, King Hussein, I think it's King Hussein, the Jordan, Jordan's King, and I think it was Hussein, but I'm not sure, um, for the, for, they've been paying him off in school, in schools for his children, in money, in prostitutes, et cetera. And Carter had campaigned on saying that he would never this nothing that the CIA would ever do would ever shame people because that was under Nixon. The CIA had been killing people and spying on Americans and so forth. So Ben Bradley and Bob Woodward went to Carter and said, well, we found out that the CIA is doing this and you said the CIA would never do anything back. What's up with that? And Cyrus Vance, Secretary of State, was about to land in Amman to meet with um, Hussein. And, and, uh, and Carter said, you know, this is pretty in- – I've stopped it, number one. I just found out about it, and I've stopped it. And it would be great if you wouldn't print this. And they said, well, is it a matter of national security? And he wouldn't say yes. He didn't world say, yes, it is. Don't print it. But he said, I'm not going to tell you how to do your jobs. And they printed it while Vance was in Amman with King Hussein. Mm. And then, And then Woodward writes up this thing about how Carter – gave a very different impression of the meeting that that they had had afterward because Carter was pissed and he said so and he condemned them for running the story. Um, but he didn't lie. He didn't lie about what had happened in the meeting and he didn't lie in the story. And, and Woodward treats this as if it's like a Nixonian level. 
oh, Jimmy Carter said, I'll never mind. Here he is mm-hmm. giving a different impression of the meeting where he wouldn't even bother to, not bother, but he wouldn't even allow himself to, to call it national security. So I think, I think Carter, you know, it was his personality and it was the times, but he went overboard. And, uh, and I think that the sanctimony that he, with which he made this case that he wouldn't lie and the fact that he and Hamilton Jordan and his people from Georgia, they all acted like they were so much more moral than the swamp that he came to. I think this set people against him and made his presidency far less successful than it would have otherwise been. Yeah. Okay. So then Reagan, I mean, as you know, he's an interesting case because it's, it's toward the end of his administration, especially it's not totally clear how in touch with reality he was, but in any event, um, some significant deceptions happened, maybe most famously Iran-Contra, and that's where we were, I guess we were selling weapons to Iran, I mean, through Israel, as hard as that is to imagine today, but but uh, with Israel's participation, we were selling weapons, to, uh, missiles or something to Iran, and then, you, and, and overbilling them and using the excess profit to fund a secret, uh, secret support for the Contras in Central America, and by the way, when I was at New Republic, uh, we once had the Contras for lunch. They're like the leading Contras. That was yeah, like one Adolfo of the, that was one of my, one of I, my brushes. I think I went greatness. to a luncheon at the New Republic with the Contras. The New Republic. You, you may have been there. The Contras should have paid the New Republic for all that support. Yeah, that they got Paris some, they got some good press. I'm happy yeah. to say I didn't write any of those editorials, but they got some good press. The, um, anyway, so there was that and, uh, and in general, what's your take on Reagan? I mean, um, you, you, it's, it's not a very favorable view, I gather. Damn straight, it's not. <laughs> well, Re- Reagan was nuts. I mean, Reagan said that he liberated the concentration camps, and he didn't. Like he Th- said, that he was like that he, he was present it. as a soldier for the liberation of. Right, Dachau he never left California. Yeah, that, that makes um, it hard. Yeah, he said all kinds of things that that were were impossible to make to believe but he said them the way an actor says them he's a good wasn't a bad actor um and and when he would get caught he would say well i really believe this and i still believe it but i'm told by other people that it's not true so i guess maybe it's not true and and the press just went along with this the interesting thing about reagan from the standpoint of holding presidents accountable for their lies is that he would say all kinds of things that weren't true in their first um, in the beginning of his term. And the press would point this out because we had a much more aggressive press in those days with regard to these things. And, and nobody cared. And people just attacked the press. And Ben Bradley, the famous hero of Watergate, and who was very tough on Jimmy Carter, said, you know, we just got to stop this. The country is against us and we need to be on the same side of the country. So they just stopped and they let Reagan get away with whatever he wanted. Now, I think if you ask me, if you want to get technical about what is a lie, Reagan is the toughest case because he was, he became quite senile, probably suffered from Alzheimer's, uh, increasingly during his presidency. And he was so good at pretending, at, at apparently believing what he said that there's no way to demonstrate. He never, he never like went off script. You know, he never said, Nancy, I sure fooled those dumb, dumb jerks. Mm-hmm. So the things he said, he probably believed them. 
but I don't care. I, if we have a president who believes things that are easily provable lies, then they're lies. Then he's lying when he says them, if he mm-hmm. believes them or not. So th- in the case you're talking about, Iran-Contra, Congress had explicitly forbade U.S. funds going to arm the Congress. Congress did. That was called the... um the, who, who, that was an amendment named after a certain congressman. Is it? It's not Bowen, is it? Yeah, the Bowen amendment. Edward Bowen. So to get around this, because they couldn't get the money from Congress, they did what you just described. They vast, they sold weapons to Iran while Iran was holding U.S. hostages and had been designated as a terrorist regime. Um, so that, um, they could, and overcharge them for these missiles so that they could use the profits to arm the Contras to fight this war that Congress had explicitly forbidden. And, and then the then, hostages would get released in the bargain? Theoretically, the but, yeah. but they didn't, they never did. Um, but, uh, what, what ended up happening was the, the deal was revealed by a weekly magazine in Lebanon. And then they had to come up with a cover story. And they came up with a cover story that kept changing, and they kept having to lie about the cover story. There were a lot of people at the time who said, as with Nixon, if they had come clean uh, and not come up with the cover-up, they would have been all right. But they kept lying and lying and lying, including the Attorney General of the United States, to draw another parallel. Now, is this when today. Elliot Abrams uh, told his lies to Congress for which he was convicted? Or is that a different time in the Reagan? I think that's in the Reagan administration. Yes, right? no, yes, absolutely. And, and he, by the way, is now a, I, I think, a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations or something. I mean, I he think absolutely that may actually fellow. be true. He is, right? He's a fellow of the Council of Foreign Relations, and he has been appointed by the yeah. Trump administration to overthrow that, Venezuela. That's what being convicted, convicted of lying to Congress will get you, a chair at the Council on Foreign Relations. Absolutely. The thing about Elliot, she's been a hobby horse of mine. Ever since I've been old <laughs> enough to write articles, I wrote my first article about him. I think in 1987. In the no, I wrote an article called "The Teflon Assistant Secretary" before the Iran Contra scandal, um, in the Washington Monthly, 85 or 86. My first big article, and Elliot Abrams participated under Ronald Reagan in defending the Guatemalan government from charges by human rights, I mean, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, particularly Guatemala. Guatemala, he, he attacked the people who criticized the Guatemalan government and defended the Guatemalan government. The UN Truth Commission with legal status in Guatemala has since found that government guilty of genocide. Uh, and they were guilty of genocide at the time that Elliot Abrams was defending them and participating in trying to get Congress to arm them. They were so bad that they couldn't even get Congress to arm them. So Elliot Abrams is is unique in our public life of having been an enabler of legal genocide. And yet he's, a, as you say, a, a respected member of the Council on Foreign Relations. That to, that to me is mind-blowing. Well, there's, there's something rotten in the state of... Um, Washington. I mean, he's not just a member. I think he's an actual. I think he's an actual fellow. No, that's what I mean. He's a. Yeah. He's a. He's yeah. a. He's employed by them. Yes. Yeah. The um. So uh, he was also national security. Uh, national security staff in the Bush administration, in charge of the Middle East. 
Which Bush? Uh, second. second Bush. Yeah. Now, speaking of him, uh, uh, you know, it, it has often uh, happened to me in conversations about the Iraq war where people say to me, you know, the thing I don't understand is um, if 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 he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, why wouldn't he let the inspectors in? And I always go like, oh, my God, what's going on? Am I living in a, uh, you know, because he did let the inspectors yes. in. We, we, he let them look wherever they wanted to look. We had to kick them out of the country so we could invade it. Now, I hadn't realized until reading your book that George Bush himself said that after uh, at some point after the invasion, the second George Bush uttered the same bizarre statement that he wouldn't let the inspectors in. Yeah. Um, th- th- what do you think is going on? And I-, I mean, I'm guessing he actually be- I don't know which is a more alarming thought that he actually believed it or that he didn't. But what do you have a theory? I think George Bush is a little bit like Donald Trump. Uh, in that he said whatever came into his head. And he might have believed it at the moment that he said it because he didn't remember that what he had done. I don't know. I, I don't, this is why I'm not interested in speculating what's inside a guy's head. It was a lie at the time he said, he said it twice, by the way, mm. that, that, that particular lie after the war. So, um, you know, the thing is, Bob, and this is what, this is what Donald Trump is relying on. Most people are not paying very much attention, you know, and, and so they don't know. If there were weapons of mass destruction there or not, they heard there probably weren't, but they're not sure. And a, a great number of people in the media, and in this case, I believe I quote Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, probably the most influential interlocutor in foreign affairs in America, and um, and some tough people from the Washington Post, including Howie Kurtz at the time, I believe, saying it's okay if he lied about this. That's fine. We needed to go. As, as, uh, Friedman said, we need to go kick some ass. So they're interested in the bigger picture and they, they, it, like I said, they embrace the idea of a president lying to get what they want because the country, particularly with regard to foreign affairs, doesn't really understand things and can't be expected to. Mm-hmm. So you gotta lie to get them to do what needs to be done. And they, they actually go back to the example of Roosevelt and say, look, Roosevelt did it. So, um, what's so terrible? Elliot Abrams, when he got caught, he uh, he did that. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill Clinton, you say, of course, he did famously, I guess, commit perjury. But you say that uh, on balance, um, he told quote precious few falsehoods. Uh, so he, he is, is he one of these people who takes kind of takes pains to not exactly ever tell a lie. I mean, even the thing, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I feel sure he's thinking, I'm defining sexual relations as intercourse, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised that Clinton turned out to be as honest as he did. Um, he, like everyone, was caught up in the empire, so he lied about uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, what he knew about Saddam Hussein's weapons programs. Because the first George Bush's war destroyed whatever arsenal Saddam Hussein had. So he didn't have anything after that. And Clinton pretended that he did. Um, and he had probably, he should have known that he didn't. I don't know. Why, why did he want to pretend that he did? Cause he wanted to be tough. Cause he was under a lot of pressure to bomb Iraq and he wanted to be tough and show that he was a tough guy. Democratic presidents mm-hmm. always have to show how tough they are. So that's how he did it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he might have believed it. But uh, um, I don't know. But he told falsehoods about that. Um, rather minor compared to uh, what Bush told. But Bush was able to build on them. And so they took significance in that respect. But otherwise, he was actually, I, I, I get, the, I didn't write this. I'm just thinking it now, but I get the feeling like he was one of those like Catholic boys who goes to confession and, you know, says exactly narrowly what's barely true, what, what is exactly true, even though it, 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 uh, cause he doesn't want to do too many Hail Marys. Mm-hmm. But, um, and he lives, you know, on that line and, uh, and he, he actually, yeah, he got a bad rap. This whole Swick Lee thing, it derived from his, I think, sexual adventures. He, you know, if you're going to commit adultery, you have to lie. Uh, I quote, I quote, uh, Dale Bumpers when he was a attorney. He said, all of the perjury I ever dealt with had to do with adultery. Like it's part of the thing. If you're, if you're going to be a philanderer, you have to lie. So Clinton had that habit because he was quite clearly a philanderer. Um, uh, but with regard to being president, he was pretty good. I, I knew a lot about what was going on in the Clinton administration at the time. I had a lot of good friends inside there, and they leveled with me. And he, he was strangely honest. He was strangely honest. He got a, like, like Jimmy Carter, he got a bad rap for not lying on the key. Like when he, when he didn't invade Haiti, he could have lied, and he didn't. And then we'd have been better off lying. Okay. Now, um, Obama, there's his, uh, if you, if you like your health care, you can keep it, which turned out not to be true, much to his, uh, subsequent chagrin and, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and he suffered for that politically. But, um, him, him too, you find, uh, Obama's actually in the, he's in a category all by himself in terms of, in terms of honesty. Yes. Yeah. 12 lies in eight years, not lies, 12 falsehoods. Almost none of them repeated. All of them corrected, going to the trouble of correcting them. There's a story I didn't get in the book, which I love, and I'm angry that it got taken out. Abe Lincoln, who was a remarkably honest fellow, he had a uh, biography, a campaign biography written about him by a writer who later became famous. And it, it, the guy wrote it like he was great. Like he said, his family from over the Mayflower and stuff. And, uh, and Lincoln, as president, went into the Library of Congress and crossed out all the falsehoods <laughs> in that book as president. Um, Obama, I- including this, you can keep your health care, which is very hard to explain why he did it in the first place. But in every single case of the eight falsehoods he told in his first term and four he told in the second term, he went to the trouble of saying, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Here's the truth. And he did not repeat himself. So mm-hmm. in the book, I mentioned that uh, Trump told 45 lies and 43 lies in 45 minutes one day on Sean Hannity. Obama, he, he went to a lot of trouble to tell the truth. And um, again, it, it was of no political value to him. He would have been better off lying in a lot of these cases. Hmm. Well, that's a disturbing thought. That um, lie, that lie about uh, health care. You know, the press made, it was chose by PolitiFact as the lie of the year, even though they had in previous years the very same quote related as partially true. I mean, it ends up what he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep them. You know, the number of people who that wasn't true for it was about 2%. Mm-hmm. So it was actually 98% true, in fact. Um, 
but it wasn't exactly true. And Obama knew that. And I don't know why. I guess he was just oversimplifying things. Um, and he shouldn't have done it. And then he, but he came out the next day and he said, I'm sorry. This is, this is what I meant to say. The fact that he said it, I mean, he made a terrible mistake in saying it to like the American Medical Association. He said it to a bunch of doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was definitely a big stumble. And, and the media were, because we haven't talked about both sides of them, but because so many in the media are addicted to both sides of them, they were so thrilled to find Obama having said something that they could catch him on when at the time the congressional leadership of Republicans was lying as often as they So both sides being, well, the thing you alluded to earlier where your job, this isn't, you just mean your job is to present both sides. He said false, this, she said false that. False equivalence is a better way of putting it. Okay. When, so, so also, is this a relative, a close relative of whataboutism? No. No. Okay. What about is when you change the subject because you can't defend what your position is. Or you point to what, you point to something that seems comparable done by the accusing side. So Americans say, wait, Russia is doing this bad thing. And you say, well, wait, look at our, look at what we did in Guatemala. What about is how every single conversation about Israel takes place. You say Israel is occupying all these people and they're torturing them and they're treating them badly. And then someone says, well, what about uh, terrorism in the 1970s. Okay, fine. Change the subject. So in the case of false equivalents, I'll give you an example that I use. Somebody who everybody loves now, this um, reporter. Who's the reporter who does the daily for the Times? What's his name? Michael Barbaro. Barbaro. Yes, Barbaro. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this story in after, during the Republican primaries of 2016, where he said, Look, the Republicans are telling, saying a lot of things that are false. And he went through every, every candidate, although he never used the word lie. He said exaggerated. And then he said, but what journalists called the to be sure paragraph. And this to be sure paragraph, he said, yeah, Democrats do this too. 28 years ago, Gary Hart lied. 24 <laughs> years ago, Bill Clinton lied. And Hillary's emails, which by the way, she didn't lie about, turns out. Um, so, so Trump is saying these incredibly crazy things and Ted Cruz is and, 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 uh, you know, oh, they all are Marco Rubio. They're all saying complete and total nonsense. And yet in this to be sure paragraph, you have a 28 year old lie by a guy who has, you know, that's the, that's the false equivalence that you see all the okay. time. And, uh, and that's how the Republican party got away with not being tethered to reality. Because it was always seen as everybody does it, when in fact what they were doing was something entirely new, and it led to Donald Trump. And here we are. Here we are. And uh, we should say that we're taping this as 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 we as we said at the very uh, near the end of July, and this will not run until your book comes out. Uh, so that would be August 11th at the earliest. And by uh, according to your metrics, Donald Trump will have told another uh, know, several hundred or so more lies. But yeah. uh, uh, as you as you and uh, you, you rely on Daniel Dale as the authority there. Um, yeah, for, well, I uh, may I may Daniel, have the number wrong, but anyway, a lot. Well, a he's lot. told Daniel Dale has fewer lies in his count than the Washington Post does. I see. Um, they have they've said twenty thousand up till now. They don't call them lies. And Daniel Dale has a slightly, has a different, he uses a different category and he's got less. 
But what Daniel Dale does, which they never do, is put these lies in context mm. and, and show what he's actually doing and how it's often misreported um, in the coverage. And, uh, and if you compared it to what CNN's coverage was that day, then he'd probably be out of a job if he did it too often because mm. he would be embarrassing his own network. But um, the Washington Post just says this is not true and leaves it at that. And, and there's no context for it. And again, yeah. in the rest of the, in the rest of the newspaper, it's treated as if it is at least possibly true. Okay. Well, anything else you want to say about the book? A lot of, lot of rich historical, uh, detail that I found engrossing. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. No, look, I've been doing, I've been, I started writing about presidential lies in 1991 or two. And I've been tracking this for a long time. I've been living it with it for a long time. And I, when I started, the first book was a study of four presidential lies that I thought had particular consequences as you followed them through. Mm-hmm. Like I think the Cuban Missile Conference played a role in causing the Vietnam War. Um, and Yalta had played a role in creating the Cold War that we had. But now, uh, because of this combination of building on lie after lie after lie with presidents and the radicalization of the Republican Party and the inability or unwillingness of the media to hold them accountable, we're in a far, we're in a situation I never could have imagined. We're in a situation where democracy is in danger and fascism is possible. And uh, particularly American form of fascism. That uh, I was shocked when I found myself writing that conclusion, but it made sense to me. So I think lies are in the first place, even though there are a few presidential lies I'm cool with, lies are where we have to make our stand because as, as philosophers, particularly Hannah Arendt, have warned, if we don't, if we don't have a truth we can agree on, we, we can't function as a society. Okay. Um, so the book is Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse. Congratulations. Thanks for taking the time. Any place else, uh, people should go to see your stuff? Like, uh, your Twitter handle is what? My Twitter handle is Eric underscore Alterman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a Facebook page, which is open to everyone. And my column, uh, you can find all my columns at the nation. At the nation, right. And my Twitter handle is Robert Writer, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R, just in case. <laughs> you should want to follow me. Thank you, Bob. I'm sure all the other interviews I do will be a disappointment after this one. This is really great. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you liked it. This was this was great, and good luck with the book. Uh, I anticipate great things for it. Thank you so much.